I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Our guest today is Christine Louis de Cannonville. She is a psychotherapist in Dublin, Ireland for the last 20 years. At present, she works with victims of narcissistic abuse, many of which suffer from narcissistic victim syndrome. Often these victims will be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, or complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD, disassociation disorder, low self-esteem, self-mutilation, suicidal thoughts, chronic pain, depression, and somatizations, a variety of physical symptoms. For this reason, she feels it necessary to educate therapists and the general public about narcissism so that they can avoid becoming a victim in the future. Her book, The Three Faces of Evil, which goes in-depth into this topic, will be published in April of 2015. Christine has a degree in theology and psychology and has studied other spiritual paths. As part of her master's degree in medical anthropology, she studied with various indigenous shamans from Native American Sioux Indians to Peruvian, Bolivian, European, Celtic, and Mexican shamans. She has also studied forensic psychology, criminology, and criminal psychology. It has been part of her life's work to integrate these two ways of knowing, Western behavioral psychology with Eastern consciousness psychology, into an integral transpersonal therapy that is seamless for working with the whole person, not just a mental, emotional, and physical level, but also at a soul level of the self. Good morning, Christine. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, Christian, for inviting me. It's quite an honor. Oh, it's well. A big deal. It's, it's a big deal for a little Irish old lady to be speaking on American radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just so glad I found your information. It was actually an American um, psychologist that referred me to you. I was asking her about who the leaders are in terms of therapists on narcissistic uh, behavior and narcissistic uh, survivor. Um, issues, and she pointed me towards your website, NarcissisticBehavior.net, and I went, oh, I've, I have to interview this woman. I just have to. Well, thank, thank you very much to her for suggesting me. So tell me, I know you're writing a book, and I want all of our listeners to know about, about the book. Um, let me know, let us know uh, the title of the book and when it's going to be out. 
Okay, the title of the book is The Three Faces of Evil, uh, Unmasking the Full Spectrum of Narcissistic Abuse. It's due to be um, published in April of next year. Wonderful. Now, what are the, I know you explained this to the book, but for our listeners, um, what are the three faces of evil that you talk about in the book? Um, basically, it's a book about the dark triad. That's not a term used by therapists generally, but it is a term that's used in criminology. And when we talk of the dark triad, we're talking about narcissism, Machiavellianism and psychopathy. Now, I don't speak about them in those terms in my book. In my book, I talk about them as the narcissist, the malignant narcissist, and the psychopath. Okay. So they're the three faces. I know, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot written now. Thankfully, there's much more awareness now, but there's still, you know, as I've shared with you and the different emails that we've had um, go back and forth. Um, you know, I, I certainly on my road to discovery about what narcissism is and how I've been affected by it and my role mm -hmm. in it as well. Um, I, I know that there are a lot of therapists that really didn't know how to help me. Mm -hmm. Is that, That's yeah, is that, is that, you know, where your work, um, started to maybe dip in this direction was you realizing that therapists just weren't educated on how to help survivors? Well, how it came to light for me really was I actually experienced this form of abuse myself, and um, I had no I, I knew I, I knew it was abuse that I knew very well, but I had no idea there was a name for it. And um, at some point along the way, I did some research and got a name for it, hmm. um, and that was actually it put me on a road to developing then what was really going on. However, it's not part, I, I was a therapist at the time as well when I discovered all of this, and never in all of my time in my trainings, and I've done many different types of trainings, I've also done a degree in psychology, and never at any time did I hear about the isms of narcissism at all. Hmm. And that would be typical of a Certainly in Ireland. We, it's not part of our training, but it doesn't seem to be part of your training in America either from what right. I'm hearing. Right. It really isn't um, that I've come across. I'm not a therapist. Um, I work with many and have worked with many personally, and then I also you know, do a lot of volunteer work with mental health patients. So I'm steeped in you know, this, uh, the culture of American psychotherapy and it's not something that's discussed often. And if it is, it's very, it's touched upon very lightly. And the attitude seems to be, you know, if you've, you're a victim of this, um, type of, uh, disordered person, just get over it and move on. And that is probably the worst advice I think you could give to any person trying to survive this type of abuse. Well, I would go further and I would say it's actually a further abuse of yes. the victim to actually say that. And, I mean, I do understand why people not understanding the subject would say that, but it's the worst thing because already the victim is feeling that there, there is something wrong with them. They've been told it long enough by their abuser that they're mad, that there's something wrong with them. That, and so to hear that from a professional that 
look, just, you know, put it behind you, move on. If it were that easy, they would have done that. Right. But it isn't. It isn't easy. Why do you think that is? I think because there's so much damage that is done to the victim during the time that they're in the relationship. And it, the relationships can be anybody, to be honest. They're, you know, I'm not just talking about romantic relationships where it's a spouse. It can be a child growing up in a family with a parent that's narcissistic. It can be a friendship. It can be in the workplace. And the abuse is equally as bad, no matter where it comes from. Because I've actually experienced it in all of those areas. And I've also worked with victims that have experienced it in all of those areas as well. And the abuse is the same. The effects are the same. Do you think that, um, you know, someone that suffers this kind of abuse, um, and, and you're saying, you know, you yourself as well as other people you've worked with have suffered it in all areas of their life, it seems like, you know, if due to your own pathology, and this is something I learned also from emailing back and forth with you, um, that a certain personality type or certain, well, certain personality types attract narcissists to them? That's absolutely true. There's this feeling that to be a victim, you're weak and pathetic. Actually, narcissists are generally not attracted to the weak and the pathetic at all. Hmm. They're actually attracted very much to the strong. And what makes... Narcissists are very envious. If you happen to have something that they want, and I mean, I'm talking about in the workplace or with a friendship or wherever. If you happen to have something that they want, they will make friends with you. And they will be incredibly clever in the way that they do it. But they're doing it with a purpose, and the purpose is self-gain, really. They're after something, they want it. And they'll, uh, they'll employ whatever tactics are needed to get that. So they're attracted to people who are quite successful generally, people who are maybe have privy to information they don't have or who mix in a circle they would like to be long to. So it's a misnomer to think that they, the, the victims are weak. That has never been my experience of my clients either. Yeah, I um, I haven't experienced that either. I, I agree with you. I think what I've seen with working with people and also in my own experience is uh, they're successful, tend to be attractive, um, again, have something that the narcissist wants, but over the course of the abuse, the victim becomes not what they want, not what they were when they first met the narcissist. They become basically a shell of themselves after suffering the abuse. Is that also what you experience? Absolutely right. The abuse attacks every aspect and every level of the individual. So mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, <clears throat> excuse me, and yes, they, they become a shell of their former self. And they're confused because they don't know what has happened. Right. They've met this very attractive person in the, to begin with who was um, 
exciting and made them feel very, very important and actually made them feel that they were very, very similar to themselves. Mm -hmm. And th this is actually gaslighting behavior. A lot of people may not know that term, but any therapist who's working with victims needs to understand what gaslighting is because it's very, you know, insidious behavior. So the, the, the um, narcissist tends to come in and they will mirror their victim. They will listen acutely to what they have to say in the beginning, only in the beginning now. And um, that's very flattering, but it's what they're doing is they want to learn all about you. They want to learn your strengths and your weaknesses. And they will use that information later. But they'll also mirror that very, all your beliefs and all your values back to you. Mm -hmm. So you think you've met somebody exactly like yourself. Right. And that's where the hook is. Right. And what a hook it is. Boy, I've mm -hmm. suffered it myself. And um, it is, it becomes like a drug. It does indeed. So the gaslighting technique, um, or, or gaslighting, um, what I've observed and experienced is that narcissists rarely are alone, or, or at least some of the ones I've met. They have a whole um, posse of, of comrades that they've um, enlisted, uh, that I've read the term the flying monkeys, um, that are part of their troop, and, and, and these people are used to enact um, a lot of the narcissist's uh, behaviors on whoever the, you know, becomes the target, which the target is often the person that they just had on a pedestal, but over time that person becomes the target. What types of people are generally drawn in um, to, you know, becoming a flying monkey for a narcissist? Well, I would suspect that flying monkey is not a term I know very well, uh, but um, certainly I understand narcissism by proxy is what I think you're talking yes, about. Yes, that is. Where they get, other, they get other people to do their bidding. Yes. Um, but very often what they have done is they, they set up people all around them. They're smart. They're very, very smart. They, make pe they seduce pe all sorts of people around them. These become what's called their narcissistic supply. Mm -hmm. And Every narcissist needs narcissistic supply because actually their egos are quite fragile. So they need lots of people to stroke them and tell them how wonderful they are, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. But they can also then, you, particularly women actually, the narcissistic woman uh, will use narcissism by proxy big time. Uh, she'll use that to erode the relationship. So for instance, let's say in the workplace, the narcissist picks on a victim, they target somebody, um, they will go to all the other people in the office and they'll spread nice little rumors around this individual, but they'll do it in a beautiful way. They'll sort of say, oh, poor Mary, she's having troubles at home. I've noticed her work is failing terribly. I've had to correct a lot of her work, but, you know, she's having a hard time. We need to, we need to look after her. But they'll tell a different story to each person they speak to. They don't tell the same story. So you might be in that office with me, and I might say, oh, did you hear about Mary? 
And I'm assuming, you say, yeah, I'm assuming you're thinking that you've heard that she's having difficulties at home, but actually you've been spun a different story. But you're assuming I know that story too. Mm. So we're never really communicating properly, any of us, because we don't, we all have different stories. But bit by bit, they erode the relationship around the, you know, for this victim. So they pull them down bit by bit, and then they get other people to do their bidding. It's interesting the damage, you know, that this causes, and, and what I've seen happen so many times and experienced myself was, has been the effect of the narcissist as the match holder, always, and they have people around them that are, you know, doing their evil deeds for them. Um, so that they can always come out smelling like a rose or always look like they're not the ones that, you know, are actually holding the match. Um, and I myself have been a um, someone that has done the bidding for a narcissist mm -hmm. and then turned around and went, wait a minute, wait a minute, what what's going on? And I've noticed that the moment that one person in the chain speaks up and speaks out against the narcissist, that is the... Um, that is the time when you become the target. Absolutely. Because you're, the, the, you're either the, the friend or the enemy. You're, there's no gray areas. They're black and white thinkers. You know, you're either all right, like in the beginning of the relationship. You can't do anything wrong. You smell of roses, mm -hmm. no matter what you do. Um, but once then they turn, now there's nothing right with you. You're all wrong. So the black and white thinking does that. And so do you find that many victims of this abuse are being told that they are the ones who created all the all of the problems, they are the ones that are the narcissist, so to speak, and um, and then the narcissist has, you know, this whole group of people agreeing with them that this new person that, that just became the target that used to be on pedestal is now, they are the ones who are the problem. And so not only are they... Uh, were they part of the posse when they pulled away from it and have become the target, then all the blame is shifted onto that person as to who the evil deeds were all coming from. Absolutely, absolutely. Because the narcissist will make sure to discredit their victim. When the victim rumbles them, and sometimes the, the victim does rumble them and challenges them, and then, then the, they'll step up the abuse. But they will, they might get away from their victim, but they will discredit them all around them. So if you're in the workplace, you'll be discredited to your colleagues. Um, you, there will be rumors going around about you. There will be character assassinations being done on you left, right, and center. You won't know it, but you'll feel that there's something not right. People that you're always friendly with, suddenly you feel there's something changed but you've no idea what it is that's changed. Mm -hmm. that's, so, yeah, so it, they're incredibly clever. You know, we shouldn't underestimate them. Right, and you use the, you know, the term coward. I guess what I, I'd love to get into and for providers here in the, the United States to hear about what, you know, makes up a narcissist and, you know, how, maybe not how they became a narcissist, but... I, I've heard you use the word clever, and they certainly are clever about certain things. But I've also noticed in their arrogance, they can be quite naive in, in some ways. Um, and, 
so there's a you know there's a dichotomy there between their personality so what makes up you know someone who is a narcissist well there's different levels as well when we're talking about the dark triad we are talking about different levels and each level is worse than the last one mm. but yet they will overlap so for instance the your common garden narcissist um, who needs to uh, have attention and needs to uh, need for entitlement and control and power and grandiosity and to be special that's all part of the common garden narcissist stance but when the, it goes then over into the malignant narcissist you now are going to be adding on to that so they will have all those qualities but they'll also be sadistic and they you know they they will be 10 times worse than what you experienced if not more and then when it goes up in, into psychopathy they will be carrying all of those they'll have all of the traits of the narcissist all of the traits of the malignant narcissist so the antisocial personality disorder the sadism the paranoia but they also then will also have brain abnormalities as well so for instance a psychopath can be actually when you when you actually realize or get to know about a psychopath you will find that actually there were signs there in their childhood with their behaviors and that sort of thing already right and they're usually signs on the way in the relationship but we're so uneducated about what it is that we you know you i think we will get a, an instinct that natural instinct will come up that something's not right with this person but naturally as a good person or an empathic person you want to believe only the best in people so that's how you get sucked in i know you know in some of my relationships i've had big signals someone telling me you know, I'm not even medicated and I'm always on an even keel. And I remember at the time hearing that this person brag about it who ended up being absolutely one of the worst narcissists I've ever dealt with in my life. Um, I remember at the time thinking, well, how sad for you. That means you have no emotion. Uh-huh. Yes, you're... Um, you were asking me earlier how did it happen? To them, how do they mm -hmm. become like that? Yeah, um, there's different there's different thoughts on that, but I I would say, I would actually think that they're all have they all have been victims in their own right, in their own time, and with the with the somebody with end narcissistic personality disorder, that can develop from two particular ways. And either they are neglected by not getting their needs met, or they're neglected by overindulging them. And this and is in, and this is in childhood, right? This is in childhood. Okay. So you're you're seeing that particularly, you know, we're actually the research is showing that we're actually going through a narcissistic epidemic since we turned the 21st century. Yes. So you, you can see the behaviors are very, very different now for children. Like, you know, a child can't even get their first tooth or do their first poo in the potty without <laughs> everybody applauding them on Facebook. <laughs> right. <laughs> So the children are being told all around them that they're, 
they're special. Now, you and I know that children are special, but we're filling their heads that they're more special than special. Right. And there's even programs in our schools now that are called being special. So the children really, yeah. <laughs> well, we have them here. I don't know about you over there. But, <laughs> but we probably got them from you, if, if the truth is known anyway. Probably, probably, yes. Because we, like yeah, we like to imitate you very much. The seed of narcissism, there. I would say, starts in Western civilization. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And with the malignant narcissist, um, they actually would have known um, abuse as well. The other one may not have had abuse. Well, it is abuse if they're neglected. But they may not have experienced the physical abuse that we all know. But the malignant narcissist has known abuse. They've been brutalized. And they, that's why they are far more dangerous and Machiavellian. They are in a rage, and you only have to scrape the veneer, and the, there's a, 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 a rage spiral there ready. And then, of course, the psychopath, well, they're also dealing with... Theirs would be also biological and sociological problems. So they have the environmental and the, the health issues as well. So the, a psychopath is elevated, meaning that this is someone who was has been born most likely with um, something missing, that a healthy human being. And is that uh, genetically inherited in your findings? It would seem that it, it could well be. Like the um, Hare, Robert Hare is the person who really is the expert in all this area. And he would talk about the psychopath as being the mean, the mean side of the dark triad. So he's the meanest now of all. And they would have brain abnormalities that impair their emotional learning, their linguistic processing, their moral reasoning. It affects their socializing. And of course, most of all, their conscience. So they're total predators, really. Absolutely. And they, don't seem, they don't seem to know the joy you know, they have the extremes of narcissism and and the extremes of the malignant narcissist running in their in their blood as well. So they really, but they wear the mask of normalis, normal, yes. normalcy, and that's the thing. They look incredibly normal. That is and, so dangerous. That is what is so dangerous because they absolutely look like they're the nicest guy and come across as yeah. the nicest guy or gal um, yes. on the planet and that I think for victims you know that is part of what you're you're I mean that in itself is gaslighting I would think if I'm using that yes. term properly um, you are using it yes you are using it properly like for instance you're, you're Ted Bundy I mean what a lovely looking man he was mm -hmm. a man are you familiar with Bundy, Ted yes. Bundy? Yes, absolutely. Um, the serial killer? Yes. And he, you know, a beautiful man, worked, worked counseling, you know, so he would be able to pretend to have empathy and all of that. He'd be very good at, at mimicking it, but actually he didn't feel it, and that's the difference. That's so the they don't have the, the joy and the love, or they don't show remorse. Right, exactly. The lack of remorse is what I always find fascinating, and uh, the entitlement. The, but also just um, 
you know, it makes me go back and think of when I'm talking to people, you know, trying to explain this to them. Where do you think stories about vampires came from? <laughs> you know, that, I, that know. I mean, I, to me, it makes perfect sense. You know, va vampirism has been, you know, written about for, for a long time. And maybe that word narcissism, you know, wasn't invented yet at the time that a story about a vampire, you know, was created. But to me, the, it's describing a psychopath, someone that drains Absolutely. you of your energy and all of your good qualities that they envy and they have power over you and they drain that out of, out of you, leaving you a shell of yourself. And then it makes the vampire, um, you know, more beautiful and strong and, uh, but it's temporary for the vampire. And I think that's the, the difference between a victim and the abuser. For the abuser, it's it's this temporary hit, and they have to keep getting supply. And for someone who isn't a narcissist, they just carry those qualities around with them on a daily basis. It's not something that, you know, it can be taken away from them, but they can certainly get it back, and it's sustainable. Whereas with a narcissist, it seems like all of those good qualities are not sustainable over time. Yes, and this is where you come to the uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde character, the two faces, the two extremes. Yes. Um, and, of course, in the part of the gaslight, the, one of the gaslighting techniques that every therapist should understand, really, is that they take every victim through three stages. And I don't know if you're aware of this. But in the beginning, it's called the idealization stage. That's the first stage when you first meet them. And they're highly seductive. They use love bombing to mm -hmm. create a symbiotic relationship with the victim, uh, who then becomes their narcissistic supply, of course. Um, they shower their victim with attention and love and charm. And they're very exciting. And great sexual chemistry, whether you're having a sexual relationship with them or not, mm -hmm. you'll still feel that sexual energy from them. Absolutely. And once, once they get their victim hooked, then they, the, the victim feels actually a state of euphoria. Yes. And it's caused by brain chemistry in the victim changing. So they have this, this rush of endorf endorphins, which make them, you know, excited by this individual and want to be around this individual. But of course, it's all just an illusion. Right. And they're, they're mirroring you back, basically, yourself to yourself. And you're falling in love with yourself, right. in effect, really. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> If you could just leave, if you could just leave at that point, you know, and not get sucked yeah, in the rest of the way, you brilliant. can think, wonderful, I, this is how great I think of myself, I'm in love with myself, and then just walk away. Yes, yeah, that would be, and you'd have this wonderful image of this lovely person for all life, you'd say, that was the most best friend I ever had, and, but, we, once they, once they know that they have you hooked, and they know, they know they have you hooked by the things you say. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, once you start expressing love to them um, in any form or shape, then they know that they, they have you hooked. So now they go into phase two, and that's the devaluation stage. And now they turn from the lovely, warm, 
Dr. Jackal into the cold and uncaring Mr. Hyde. Right. They'll project everything onto you. Everything that they don't like about themselves is projected onto you, and you're blamed for absolutely everything. They and can it, imagine that the victim is thrown into, they don't know what the heck utter is happening. chaos, utter chaos and utter bewilderment. Chaos. Yeah. And again, what therapists really need to know is it throws the victim into unconscious defense mechanisms. So they're not even conscious mechanisms. They're totally unconscious even to the, um, to the victim. So they get thrown into behaviors because they're trying to make the whole situation loving again, safe again. Um, they're trying to make sense of it. They haven't a clue what the heck has happened. Right. And being the empathic people tend to be attracted yes. to the narcissist. Of course, we're the biggest blamers of ourselves for everything. So it has Absolutely. to be our fault. We've done something wrong to make this wonderful person that we're not really in love with. It's ourselves we're in love with, but we think it's someone else. And now that seems to be gone, and where did it go, and what did we do to make that happen? And what we don't realize is it's not us making it happen. Absolutely. We're puppets on the string. Exactly. And, of course, the victim goes into denial because they love the, they love the nice part of this person. They remember what was all good in the beginning. And they, they feel that they can bring it back to that place. They think that they can... You know, their love is strong enough to bring that person back to that place where they were loving and kind. So they go into denial. They use rationalizations to try and, you know, oh, well, they're tired, or, oh, gosh, they're having trouble at work, so they're stressed, etc., etc. And this has an effect of sending the victim back to infantile regression. <laughs> now, we've all been, as infants, we regress, you know. We can go back as far as, you know, when the child is suckling off the mother and the, un, you know, the unfriendly breast and the child gets mad because it's not getting its milk strong and, uh, fast enough. And the child will hate the breast and hate mommy for a little while, but the child knows it needs mommy, so it has to stay attached to mom. Mm -hmm. And we learn that without even knowing we, we, we do it. So when we're put in this situation, we do this exactly with the narcissist again. We go back to being very angry and very hurt by them, but at the same time, we're afraid to lose them. We're afraid to lose the lovely qualities that they had that they showed us. And so we go into this trauma bonding with them. And um, it, that, that can lead on to Stockholm Syndrome. Yes, I read that on your site, and what I what I want to point out, too, is during this time, and I've talked to many people about this, and people, including myself, but, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm definitely a very kind, loving human being, but even friends of mine that I would, you know, put way on the scale of kindness, um, far more kind, you know, more kind than I am, that have been in that phase that you're talking about, the devaluation stage, and they'll say to me, I just, I've never behaved so badly in my life. I, you know, I was in a restaurant, I'll give you an example. I was in a restaurant and I was sitting with my boyfriend, the boyfriend who is, you know, the, the narcissist. 
and um, I got up in the middle of a restaurant and grabbed a plate off of a table and I threw it across the restaurant and it hit a wall and it struck a piece of it broke off and and struck someone in the face and caused that an innocent bystander to bleed and the narcissist sat there saying look at you you're the one with the problem look at your behavior again pointing the finger and I said to my friend have you ever behaved like that in your entire life and she said no only only with this person mm -hmm. and I think well, I... go ahead I'm sorry. sorry sorry no go on Oh, I just, I, it just amazed me how many times I would hear that, even within myself. Some of the most, and, and this is based off also something you had pointed out to me, there's nothing like a narcissist to bring out your own pathology. <laughs> and that's so true. I've never in my life behaved so deplorably in reaction to this person that was um, the worst I've ever experienced and what, you know, has caused me to learn all about narcissism. And now I'm thankful that I met him and then I've I did a housekeeping in my life and got rid of you know the 10 or so people surrounding me that I realized oh my gosh they're just popping up everywhere time to work on myself figure out why I attract these people um, and you know did a housekeeping and did went no contact with everyone which I'd, I'd like to talk about that too but I guess I what people don't understand is how this happens the narcissist is gaslighting you and you behave like th the stronger of a person you are, um, the more you're going to react to that and the more violently you may react to that to saying, stop treating me this way. And, but that is what's used against you as look at how, look at how crazy you are that you're behaving this way. Mm -hmm. And there's, I think there's another level to that. Um, I think that they actually, they always want to go after empaths, people who can be humble, who, who are gentle, who are quiet. This is the type that they're very attracted to because they don't have those qualities themselves. Mm -hmm. So they're tapping into your qualities in a kind of a way. It's a backhanded compliment in a kind of a way where if they rub shoulders with you, that some of those qualities will rub off on them. Mm -hmm. But of course it doesn't and that enrages them because the very quality that they, they're attracted to in you in the beginning gets on their nerves yes. after a while. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. And so I had, you know, I can understand your freak out because I had a similar freak out myself. And that was, I was away, actually I was away in America with this narcissistic friend who gave me hell for the whole two weeks. <laughs> and because I'm polite, I was on her territory. It was her, it was her 
um, holiday home in America. I was on her territory, so, you know, I was brought up to be polite. And I put up with it and put up with it, but I was really at the end of my nerves, really. And on the way home, there was an incident in the airport, and I haven't a clue. She got me so wound up that all of a sudden, I screamed at her at the top of my voice. Now, I don't even know that I could scream like that. I didn't, I never, <laughs> ever heard my voice that loud, ever. And I screamed at her. I don't even know what I said, but it was, you know, it was something like, why has everything always got to be about you? But it was at the top of my voice. Everybody looked at me. And I felt, the minute it happened, I felt so small. Right. And what really confused me further was, I know if my friend got in that state, I would come. But what I, when I looked at her face, she smirked. Yes. She was delighted. Absolutely. Now, I understand that now. She was delighted. She had brought me down to her level. Now, now we were equal. Mm -hmm. She was happy now. But actually, I was confused of, you see how distressed I am. I wouldn't. I wouldn't treat you like that. Why are you treating me like that? I was confused, totally confused. But I became like a fisherwoman in that, in that airport, screaming my lungs out at her. <laughs> and so, now thank God it wasn't a plate that broke and hit somebody else. Right. I'm glad I wasn't you. Well, no, that <laughs> wasn't me. That When I say a friend, oh, was I, it was someone else. But I've certainly gone, I've certainly been uh, absolutely... Um, been driven to absolute madness, the worst of my behavior, and then the nurse looking at the narcissist, smiling at me and smirking and saying, look at you, look at your behavior, you're unstable, you're, uh, you know, you're emotionally on um, off-center, you're this, you're that, and I was, and so all that shame, you know, of, like you said, you felt so small, all that shame of well, I am behaving that way, so there is something wrong with me until later on when I, you know, educated myself and realized, no, they were, you know, evilly and enjoyingly, uh, if I just made up a word, enjoyingly, uh, <laughs> trying to make that happen so that they could throw the scent off of themselves and onto me. See, you're the one who's crazy. Yeah, but that's the sadistic side of them, don't forget. That's the sadistic side. And that they they enjoy humiliating you as well. They take they take pleasure out of humiliating you. Right, mm. exactly. Take pleasure out of humiliating others. What I I try to tell yes. people now is, there are people that are hurt. Uh, they've been abused. They um, hurt people out of their own pain, um, but they don't know what they're they don't know that they're hurting people. They're just in people in pain and they're hurting people around them, their family, friends, whoever, because they're in emotional pain. And then there are people that hurt other people because they get enjoyment out of it. Yes. And that to me is the difference between, you know, someone who's having a mental health issue and some, which a narcissist is obviously a mental health issue as well, but someone who's not a narcissist that's having a mental health issue and they're hurting people. And then you have the narcissist uh, person who, um, they also have a mental health issue, but they actually enjoy and know what they're doing, take enjoyment out of it, and actually plot strategies uh, to mm -hmm. further abuse people again and again and again, knowing what they're doing. That's the difference between the two. Yes, and they're not mad. 
And it's often hinted that maybe they are. They actually are not mad. They're not psychotic. Right. Um, so they are actually sane. They just get so, some pleasure yes. out of this. Is there... They, yeah. Go, no, you go ahead. Well, they plot their lives in this way. They, they, they run, they're always about self-gain. Everything they do is about self-gain. So they're constantly looking for opportunities. And um, so they're plotting along the way. They're manipulating. And um, the way that I was manipulated in the last, the, the last relationship that I had that was narcissistic was it was somebody I worked with. And I was working there for four years, and I kept a healthy boundary. Um, I was very aware she was very controlling and all that sort of thing, but I had no trouble with her. I didn't, you know, others sort of complained about her a little bit, but I didn't have any grievance with her whatsoever. She was quite good at what she did, um, but um, I kept a healthy boundary. I came in, did my work, and said hello to everybody and was pleasant, and then I'd buzz off and say goodnight. <laughs> and for four years, that was fine. I had no problem. And then one night, it was about midnight, was after midnight the phone rang and it was this woman's husband and he said to me he didn't know who else to call that he was in the car with with her with his wife and that she was suicidal trying to kill them in the car and he didn't drive he was in the passenger seat and he was scared for his life and he didn't know what to do and he'd managed to get her to stop the car would I talk to her Oh boy. So of course I did. Yes. Of course I did. And I stayed with her for, you know, talked to her for quite a while and calmed her down. And, you know, actually she was quite calm, but I worked at calming the calmed one down. Mm -hmm. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I stayed with her all on the phone, all the way she insisted she was going to drive home. And it was about an hour's drive from where she lived. And I stayed with her on the phone for the whole entire journey, talking to her and all the rest of her, making little jokes and what have you. And uh, when she got there, she was grand. But I said that I would meet her tomorrow to see how she was, which I did. And um, I took it all very seriously. And, uh, you know, I said, look, you do, you know, she had gone through a bereavement recently. And I said, you know, you need, you need, you do need to get yourself into therapy. You need some help. You're not, you're not coping very well right now. But anyway, that was the hook. I didn't know that. I did not know that at all. Right. And I didn't find that out at all. That that was the way that, that she got. You're we talking about them getting somebody else to do their bidding. She got her husband to get me to come to her. And that's, you know, she didn't ask me, listen, I want you, I want to ask you a thing, I want, to, I want you to help me with anything. She pretended to be very, very ill so that I, she knew I would respond to that. And I did. Of course I did. Of course. But I found out about, it was long after I got away from her and everything else, and the whole thing blew up between us. And it was about a year after that that another friend of mine who lived in, in England, another country, she rang me and said that this person had been in touch with her, the husband of this person had been in touch with her, saying that his wife was who she had met, um, 
was suicidal and he didn't know what to do. I could have dropped through the floor in that moment because right. that was the moment the penny dropped from me that that was the moment they reeled me in between them because they were doing exactly the same to her. Right. And what do you make of that one? Well, I think it's, I've met people like that. I've certainly been, uh, <laughs> I worked with a medical doctor that um, was a raging alcoholic and um, did the exact same thing, would reel people into her uh, her behavior but by using her spouse, uh, yeah. people that worked for her, her patients even. And um, it was a crazy making experience for me. So I think that what what I try to understand is why they do the things they do. And to me, it seems like if you're someone who's walking around in life devoid of emotion, yes, you're you must be a very uh, easily bored person, and because you're it's like living a black and white life as opposed to living a life in color. Emotion gives you texture, color. Um, you have varying degrees of gray it's not just black and white so to me it seems yes. like these people are devoid of all this richness that would be filling their um their time in life uh, with other uh, more enriching activities than trying to destroy people but because they don't have that they've they go around and create these monsters in other people in order to fill their time because that's the only sense of enjoyment they can get out of life. Yes, boredom is a huge part of psychopathy and um, that's why they're always seeking out new, it's important to understand that why the boredom is a big part of it because that's what makes them seek out new supply all the time. They love the rush of the idealization stage. Yes. But but consequently it'll always go through the three stages no matter what. It will. Each relationship. They're used to people coming in and out of their life, all of their life. They generally you they, they don't have best friends. They talk about, you know, if they if you sit with one for an hour and have a coffee, they'll go away and they'll talk about I was with my best friend. You know Kristen with the radio show? You know because you'll make them feel important. Mm -hmm. But you've only spoken, met with them once, but they will speak as if you're long-term friends. But they don't actually have long-term relationships, not, not real ones. So they are constantly looking for their... It, it is sad, because I have got compassion for them, because they are the child that never got their needs met. Right. And they try to look for that. And they're probably the five or six a seven-year-old child trapped in the body of an adult who's causing chaos and tantrums. But now where a child, you can, you can put them in the naughty corner. You can't do that. With, with a grown anymore. adult, exactly. That's right, yeah. I've, all, yeah. I've found it interesting, too, to watch how, you know, abuse or, or them setting themselves up always to save face, always to have facade. In, in going no contact, for me, um, was about blocking people from social media. I don't want them to know anything about my life anymore. Um, you know, really having no contact whatsoever. Don't have my address you know, don't have my phone number, yeah. et cetera. That's what became healthy for me. It gives you the space yes. that you need in order 
to heal. But what I found fascinating with, with one individual in particular was the amount of different stories that are told to different people. So to me, um, there was this, you know, love bombing in the terms of what he could get away with with me, which was inappropriately touching me, um, feigning love for me, all of these things while he's married, of course, and telling me the story of how awful and horrible his wife is. And yet with someone else, he did not tell the story of how awful his wife is. He talked about how wonderful his wife is. And then he used the two of us to, well, Kristen is the one who's, you know, doing this inappropriate behavior, um, not me. Look how much I love my wife. So there were all these little triangles. And now I yes. didn't do anything inappropriate. You know, someone is married and not that, you know, people do what they're going to do. But when I pulled away from that, it was all about saving face. And he wanted to absolutely make sure that I didn't talk to as many people as possible because he's got a whole lot of lies going with different people and different stories and, it, and he did not like me poking in and you know trying to get all these stories straight. Um, yeah. So well, what, they're trying, what they're trying to do of course is they're trying to isolate you from everybody. Then there's littler, you know, their, their lies are less likely to be found out. And they'll tell, depending on who they're speaking to, they'll have a story for each person they're speaking to. It will differ. And it'll differ quite a lot. You know, as you say, sometimes it'll be his wonderful wife. Sometimes it'll be his wonderful Kristen. So um, they then want to isolate you because there is a chance they'll be found out in their lies you know, if somebody comes to you and says, Christine, he, Kristen, he said this, and you're able to say, well, actually, no, it wasn't really like that. This is what happened. Um, then it, put, it casts a shadow on them. They don't want that. So they want to isolate you. So that's why they badmouth you, get you out of the picture, try to get people to keep away from you. They're turning people. People don't even realize that they're turning against you, but they are because they're being influenced to turn away from you. Right. I always marveled at, um, you know, other people that I've seen uh, in this say, why are the people around this person behaving the way they do, uh, treating me in a certain way? And I, I'll say, because the story they're being told about you is coming from the narcissist and it's not a real story about you. So that person is reacting to this story. They're not really reacting to you, the human being, and if they got to know you, the human being, that's the worst thing that the narcissist can see happening, because then they've got a, you know, someone that is telling the truth about what's going on. So, let's talk about no contact. I know that you know uh -huh. that, that's something that's talked about a lot, and sadly, you know, when you go no contact, you're giving the narcissist exactly what they want, because once you've figured them out and you've seen, uh, you know, the the facade. Um, you know, you become the most dangerous person to them, and they don't want you around yeah. at all. But when you go no contact, you know, now you are the fodder for all of what ails them and the person that, um, you know, that was the troublemaker and so on, because you're not there to defend yourself, but for your own sanity, you have to walk away. So can you explain, mm -hmm. you know, why that's important and why that actually is the healthy thing to do? Well... When you do no contact, it does hurt them because Interesting. they, yeah, they, 
you, you'll hear many cases where actually the relationship will end with them, but they'll keep bouncing back. Like the boomerang, they keep coming back. They value their narcissistic supply, and they like to go back, you know, if they're stuck, they'll go back to old supply. This is what they do. So when you do end and do no contact with them, it really does wound them. It's, their core wound is abandonment and rejection. So when you choose to do no contact with them, you are actually opening their deepest wound, really, of rejection and abandonment. And they react really badly to that. Now, there is the contradiction that they're glad in a way that you're out of the picture because now they can, they can put all these little fences around themselves and spread all the little stories about you and do all of that. But there's st it, it still is an awful wound to them that they've lost you. So there is that contradiction. And you, you're very lucky or um, very smart that you were able to work out that maybe you should be doing no contact. It's not always like that. Unfortunately, um, you know, I, 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 this is a big statement for me to say really, but I would prefer to work with victims who have already come to the stage of no contact. Mm -hmm. I will, I, I, it's much easier to work with them. But sometimes they don't leave their abuser. But they're, they, they end up in your therapy room anyway. But they actually, they don't know what they're dealing with it, but gently and you can shine light and you can name the behaviors. You can mention gaslighting and say, and let them look that up and see what does that entail and does it apply and all of that sort of thing. But if they're not ready to mm -hmm. leave. Oh boy, they'll put up a fight. You, Oh, you've got to be very careful that you don't put them in a place where they're going to be actually, you're putting them in danger. Right. Giving them the wrong, inf too much information or, you know, maybe challenge them in a way that they actually bring that back to the narcissist. Oh, yeah. So you've got to, you've got to be very, very careful. It's harder to work with those that have not come to the place where they're ready to do non-contact. No, non but certainly what you did was the right thing to do. It's the only way to recover. It is, and I don't know how I figured that out. A lot of things I did intuitively um, that I that I read about later and went, wow, good, you know, clap for me. I figured out what that was. I thought I was insane while I was doing it, but I, now I read that that was a healthy thing to do. But I've noticed with friends that, you know, are dealing with this in their own lives, um, if I push too hard in the beginning uh, that they'll become angry with me for bringing it up. Now, luck yeah, luckily, all of those friends that I've done that with have gotten to the place. I, I learned right away to just back off, and they've all come around and said, my God, I'm so sorry. You were absolutely right, and, you know, that's great. I wasn't looking for an apology, but um, – yeah. But, but I did learn, you know, and figured out, here's a therapist that you need to, you know, I'm not one, I'm your friend, and I can give you advice, but here's a therapist that I know can help you with this. But um, I, I've also learned you have to be very careful because it's that, I think it's still that state of, um, that Stockholm Syndrome state where they're still, 
Um, well, I'll give you an example. Um, a friend of mine whose ex hadn't paid child support in six years and still doesn't for two daughters and, um, you know, became very angry that he's being taken to court uh, for not paying child support um, and taken to court by, of course, the mother who's the victim of his abuse. And her saying to me, well, it's because he knows I'm such a good mother and that I'll always take care of them. And I, <laughs> I said, you're still in that, that state where you're idealizing the narcissist whose behavior is abusive because you're, I said, it doesn't matter if you were doing crack and you were on a street corner with your kids. He's, he would treat you the same as you are yeah. now. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> Yeah, but I can't I can't I couldn't I knew I couldn't say that at that time because it would be such an affront to the fantasy that she still was hanging on to. Yeah, and don't forget, you know, when somebody has lived in that situation, they have been living in a war zone. Literally. Yes. And, you know, it's a it's a war torn environment that they're living in and they're constantly trying to stay safe and part of staying safe is in protecting the other yes because so it, it is very very difficult and you have to go very very gently and you have to let them come feel that they've come to it themselves as well and, and it is very very difficult and where you know where I was dealing in the last one I was talking about I was dealing with a friend who was also a colleague and you are dealing with her love relationships in some way we could walk away it's not always that easy if it's a parent exactly. if it's your parents and you're you're so bonded with them and you hate their behavior but you love them and it's it's very very difficult well, also, if you have children with someone who's a narcissist Absolutely. and you're and you're trying to go no contact, I can't imagine it was easy for me. I mean, it wasn't easy. I mean, I don't want to. Uh, yeah. It it wasn't. Well, it wasn't easy for me either. I can yeah. tell you, it wasn't easy for me either. It's not easy to go no contact, no matter what the situation. But I can't imagine how horrifying it would be to go. No, to try to heal while you have to maintain some type of contact because children are involved. Yes. And then, of course, I mean, the thing that comes up quite a lot as well in the therapy room is that the children love, love that. You know, it's, you know, it's not always the man. Right. You've got, to be, you've got to be very, very clear here. We're talking about men and women, Correct. not just men here. But, you know, they say, oh, but but my children love their mom, love their dad so much. How can I do no contact? And so they're, they're kind of, um, in a way, kind of blackmailed through the children yes. that they can't do the no, no contact because of the love of their children. Absolutely. Taking that other parent away from them. So it's, it's, it's not an easy thing. It really isn't an easy thing. But without doubt, for a therapist who's working it's not that difficult to work with the victims. So don't, if anybody's listening, think, oh my gosh, I don't think I'd want to work in that area. It's not any different, very much different from any therapy that you're doing. But you need to be able to educate the person in these behaviors, what are happening to them, yes. so that they can research for themselves as well. Without them being educated, they're not going to make a full recovery. 
You also need to get to their defense mechanisms and find out what are the beautiful, wonderful defense mechanisms that they employed that kept them safe. And I honor those defense mechanisms, and I never would pull them down. Absolutely. They're something they, they can put them down gently, bit by bit, if they choose to. But unless they know what their defense mechanisms are, they are actually going to probably attract another narcissist yes. in the future. Because they'll, they'll be like they'll like be like a flame to the moth. Exactly. And I know. I actually when I actually have four to report. Now imagine that I've got four. <laughs> <laughs> but the best thing that ever happened to me was on the last one. Really, that kind of blew me apart. To be honest, it wasn't the worst one, but it was the one that blew me apart. In the, in that I asked the best question of my life ever. I asked, what is it I'm doing yes. that's attracting this to me? I must be doing something. Because there's only one common denominator right. in these four stories, <laughs> and that's me. <laughs> exactly. And I can tell you with my own experience, I mean, I was raised with a narcissistic um, biological father, and so I was just primed and ready to have one narcissist after another in my life from a very young age. So I can't even tell you how many, um, how many, but they were always, you know, one or two, and then, you know, we'd leave. And yes, of course, because I'm the common denominator, I'd go and meet another yeah. one, different face, different name, but the yeah. same thing until I hit my 40s. And then I went, and then it became epic. There were 10, 12 in my life. And I went, okay, this is enough. This, I, it's something I, I have to figure out what's wrong with me to, you know, without shaming myself, um, because yeah. I already was dealing with shame issues as victims of this do. Um, oh, yes, that's part of the course. Yeah, but yeah, I think for me, it, the, the last certainly wasn't the worst, but mm -hmm. it was the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, and forced yeah. me into therapy. So I do remember my last actual conversation with him. I said, you have no idea what a great teacher you've been for me. Now, of course, he took this as, you know, oh, yes. wonderful he is, and he's amazing. <laughs> and he had no idea what I truly meant by that. But, um, uh, you know, I think... That's why it's so important, this education and the work that you're doing and why I wanted to interview you and want to interview again and again and again you to, <laughs> to um, shed light on um, this, uh, dis this uh, disabling epidemic uh, that, you know, that is going on throughout the world. Um, this is not just, you know, something that happens in the United States. Obviously, it happens in Ireland. It happens, you know, all over the world. And um, I think the more healing we can do uh, with the victims, I don't think, and you'll, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, I think that getting a narcissist into the therapist's room is, um, you know, they're not, if they do go, they're not going to stick around for long. So the way I look at it is the more victims that can be treated and be made aware of this, the fewer yes. people narcissists have to feed upon. Absolutely. And that's, and how, we'll, right. and that's how we'll heal it. Yes. 
And when the, when the narcissist comes into the therapy room, it's been my, I've, I've, I've met a few of them in my therapy room, uh, but generally they were coming in to uh, let me know what needs is needed for their partner to be sorted. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> and, uh, and they're great charmers, I'm telling you. I mean, I could find myself falling for them in the therapy room mm -hmm. if, I, if I hadn't got the wisdom to know what's going on. And yeah, they're yeah they they'll come in and they they'll certainly try to seduce the therapist into fixing their partner. Right. And, and there's nothing wrong with them. And lots of therapists do fall for it, and they think, my God, they seem okay. Your woman is the problem. Right. And you know that isn't the case. But um, like yourself, I. I didn't have, I had very loving parents, but I was born into a household where the brother next to me was actually a psychopath, uh. but I, I grew up with him, and I probably was his first victim, and he probably learned all about power through me, the mm -hmm. power he had over me, and I adored him, I absolutely adored him. And uh, everybody looking on would have said, oh my God, they, they're such good pals, they get on well. And we did. But he, you know, as time went on, I saw more and more of Mr. Hyde yes. and less and less of Dr. Jackal. And so I was conditioned from a very young age too. And I learned the dance. I was brilliant at the dance. Right. You know, pleasing and being passive and being over-responsible. I was responsible for everything that he did, by the way. When he nearly killed me, and I mean, I, seriously, he put three, three of his siblings in intensive care, and I was one of them. Wow. Um, so literally, it was pretty bad. Um, but it was always, you, know, you should have known better. You should have known not to have said that, but that was going to annoy me. Right. So I became, I became the caretaker of, of all his thoughts and all of his moods and his actions. So I, of course, I was born to be a therapist growing <laughs> up in that family. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was my best school of all, actually. <laughs> and as much as I ache, uh, you know, for anyone having to deal with what they've had to deal with, and many therapists, I mean, I, I don't know, I do know some therapists that are some of the worst narcissists I've met, and they're the perfect job, you know, or profession to get into being a therapist where they can pretend empathy as you saw with, as you explained with Ted Bundy, but um, as many more are not, they're extremely empathic people who've had trauma and this is why they're attracted um, to the profession. But I, from you, I've learned how it does take special training because therapists tend to be more empathic people, it does take special training for them to know how to work with this kind of trauma and yes. how to spot a narcissist. I mean, I'm very charming. I'm a very charming person. So uh, it was really easy for the narcissist targeting me to say, see, you're the one who's charming and that everybody falls in love with. Um, yeah. You know, you're the narcissist. <laughs> well, uh, well, actually, he was right. <laughs> Because actually, one thing that we lose sight of is that we are all narcissistic to some degree. Exactly. In fact, in fact, we need to be. It's part of our, it's part of our humanness. You know, if we if we don't learn to love ourselves and take care of ourselves, who 
who's going to do it? That's so true. So actually, actually, it's it's a natural part of our humanness. It's when it becomes uh, pathological. Right. That's when there's a problem. So yes, we are we are all. I mean, yes. Sometimes I catch myself doing something, and I have to laugh and say, "Oh my God, here I am again." You know. <laughs> <laughs> you have self-awareness. <laughs> yeah, I have so. Oh, I think there's a bit of gaslighting there. Yeah, better stop that now. <laughs> exactly. We regulate. We learn to regulate ourselves. Yeah. And I yeah. think part of that statement that you had made, there's nothing like a narcissist to bring out your own pathology. Well, boy, Absolutely. that's certainly true. Um, I, I learned how just how awful I can be, and those are the things that I immediately went into therapy, you know, to work on. But here's the difference. I went into therapy immediately to work on them. The narcissist yes. never did and never will. No. No. I feel bad no. for things that I've done in my past, you know, in present that, you know, are, are I know are, are not good behavior. The narcissist does not and takes enjoyment out of it. So therein lies the difference between the two. Absolutely. I'd, I'd like to just say one last thing to anybody who's listening. Please don't be put off by the things that I'm saying. If you're a therapist already, you've got 99% of the skills already. You just need to understand the behaviors of the dark triad. If you can understand those, then you will identify as the story of your victim, of the client in front of you, as they tell their story. You'll start to pick up, you'll start to notice oh, manipulation, or seduction, mm -hmm. or whatever, you'll start to put the pieces together and the story will unfold. Um, so don't be put off that you have to be an expert, whatever right. that actually means. You, but you definitely need to um, get some information on the dark triad. And I would re recommend that we should be putting um, some pressure on our accreditation boards to get some professional continuous development programs maybe for us as members in this, you know, some workshops to teach it or whatever. Right, a DSM, uh, a DSM code yeah, for uh, yes. survival of this would be fantastic. Yes. So, you know, don't be don't be terribly frightened by what I've been saying. It, a lot of it you'll know when you'll realize that you do know. But it's just getting the awareness that you can actually identify and identify the different levels that your victim has been subjected to. Because a a, a client who's been subjected to a psychopath will be will be more damaged than someone with somebody with a narcissistic personality disorder. It will be, you know, the behavior will have been much more severe on them. So just that you, just that you're aware. But the most of the work is what you're doing and validating, validating them, because most of the time that they're even their own families get fed up with them. Yes. I told you, why don't you leave that man? He's no good for you. Oh look, don't be telling me. I don't want to know anymore. Don't tell me anymore. Right. And so to have to for your therapist just be able to validate, yes this was abuse, yes, this was done to you deliberately. That in itself is, you know, is a lot of the healing. Absolutely. For that I was going to say major healing. Yes. So um, I, 
I definitely hope that we'll get to interview again, um, get to interview you again. There's obviously so much to talk about. Um, we could talk all day about this. <laughs> I want to remind people that your book, The Three Faces of Evil, is coming out in April of 2015. Yes. Um, that your website is NarcissisticBehavior.net. Yes. And how else can people uh, reach you? Um, my site is also some. You can also it's sometimes known as the Roadshow for Therapists. Mm, wonderful. You, you can you can contact me um, through my go onto my site and you can send me a little message from there. So I'll be able to you know it'll come directly to me. And you can you can also download the first chapter of of the book if you yes. sign up for um, Christine's newsletter, which I I read through it and I'm I really can't wait for my signed copy. <laughs> right. Well, you'll be the first. And the 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 chapter that's up there for for anyone to just download is on the, on narcissism. So the, obviously, I'll do a chapter as well on the. And malignant narcissist and the psychopath as well, so that you'll see, you know, the, the different behaviors and see the differences. So I'm just one of many that please, please join me. Those of you that have information who already know more than I know, share the information. Let's get it out there. Let's get it into the classrooms for the trainee yes. psychotherapist. Absolutely. I also. I also want to actually get out there and educate the police, solicitors or lawyers, um, uh, social judges, yes, um, social workers, anyone who's dealing with the families who deal with the fallout of this that uh, and they may not be aware. That's what I hope to reach as well, not just therapists. And if there's anybody out there that has any ways of joining me or Please, please do, because I'm only one little woman stuck over here in, in Little Ireland. So we need, I've had a hundred people contact me on my site from 185 different countries. Wonderful. Oh, that's so Well, it, it's wonderful in one regard, but it's to me that's staggering that I don't yeah. know how many countries there are in the world. There's only about 200 and something countries in the world. That means that nearly every country in the world people are reading about this absolutely it's telling you how how huge it is absolutely it's it's now okay to talk about it though that's it's yes. when child yes, abuse when i was going through what i went through with with child abuse issues it was just before that became okay to talk about um in america so yes. what I feel like, I'm watching the same thing happen again now. You know, it's not been okay to talk about this, but now it is. And yes, it's, it's sad. The time is right. Yeah. The it's... time is right. And, we're, and our consciousness is ready for it now. And like yourself, 20 years ago, I was working in a, a psychiatric hospital in Ireland. And I was working with, I say, 95% of whom I worked with were actually childhood sexual abuse. And of course, a lot of their abusers would have been narcissists, but I didn't even know that word then. But like that, at that time, it wasn't something that, it was hidden. Yes. It wasn't out in the open. Look what's happened in the 20 years since. It's Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the same thing, hopefully, for, for this form of abuse as well.
It's not that it's um, reaching epidemic levels, just like child abuse didn't reach epidemic levels. This has been going on since the beginning of time. It's just that people absolutely. are talking about it. Awareness is there. Yes, you're absolutely right. You're right. Wonderful. I want to thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do this. Um, what time is it there right now? I know it's 10, 13 a.m. on the eastern uh, seaboard. It's nearly a quarter past three in the afternoon. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for doing this, and I want to thank well, all of our, our listeners as well. Christine, do you have any last words? I just would like to thank you, Christian, for your, for your kindness, for letting me come on your show and inviting me in the way you did, and giving the opportunity for me to reach out and ask for help of other people who are doing the same. Let's share our knowledge Absolutely. and let's, let's, you know, don't all sit in our little corner all on our own, isolated, but let's join forces and spread the, spread the gospel. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Christine. Thank you, everybody. Lovely to speak with you, Kristen. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all, we promised we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can fight it. Good boy.